Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. Decades ago, a friend had a child who became pregnant out of wedlock. He and his wife were so upset about this, not because of the embarrassment of the time, which there was, but because the daughter had turned away from God. She had gone by her own resources and sinned against God. They mourned over the situation and how this sin directly hurt God. Now they've loved the child. The child is an adult, but the point is the sin was against God and any sin hurts God. That's what Jesus tells us in Matthew 5, 4, when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. He's not talking about mourning over death. He here is talking about hating sin so much that we grieve over it, that we mourn over anything that we do that's wrong because we know how much it hurts God. Do you mourn over your sins, considering how deeply it hurts God when you turn away from him? Or do you mourn when you get caught or you have consequences of doing something that's wrong because you got caught or you have the consequences? As we look at Revelation last week, we saw God pronounce judgment on that horribly evil city, Babylon, mystery Babylon. Today, we're going to see how people responded to that destruction of that city and what the motives of their hearts were. As we do, we need to ask ourselves if we tolerate sin or if it grieves us so much because we know it grieves God. I'm Debbie Blank, welcoming you to our ongoing verse-by-verse study in the book of Revelation. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. In the second part of Revelation chapter 18, we see three groups of people mourning over the destruction of Babylon the Great. As they viewed the destruction from a distance out of fear, their initial response seems to be shock and horror over witnessing the annihilation of the once great city. Then they truly mourn as they realize the total loss of everything they have enjoyed from their immoral association with her and the source of great wealth she had become to them. Will the terrible judgment of Babylon the Great bring them to true repentance? And will it serve as a warning to us as we get a preview of God's judgment upon this evil world system? God's desire is not to destroy us or punish us. His desire is to draw us to himself. And he does that through discipline, or at least for those of us who believe in him, he does it through discipline. As we look at Hebrews chapter 12, it tells us in verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, this is for those who believe him. What we're going to read in Revelation 18 are not those who believe in God. But we need to understand that discipline is part of God. In our case, it's discipline to draw us to God, because it goes on to say in Hebrews twelve seven, it is for discipline that you endure, that God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then he finishes in verse 11 by saying, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
Yet for those who've been tested by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God uses discipline to deal with us. When we make mistakes, there are consequences. But also in the areas in our lives where we need to grow, he disciplines us because he needs to get rid of that dross, that sin, that ugliness, that anti-gad behavior that we had. He needs to turn us more to be like Christ. So he has to get rid of all of our sin that's in our past and in our nature. That's what God does for those who love him. For those who turn away from him, he brings judgment. And when he brings judgment again, the attitude is, are you going to accept this and change or are you going to be destroyed? We saw in Revelation 17 how the religious system was destroyed. And then in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, we saw the call for the destruction of the city of Babylon. And is this really Babylon? I don't necessarily believe so. I believe Babylon represents the world system that has turned away from God and the world system that has turned into greed and into power. I don't necessarily think it's the city of Babylon. In the Bible, Babylon was mentioned in the New Testament, but it was believed to refer to Rome at that time. So I believe Babylon refers to the city of the ungodly and those who turn away from God. So in Revelation 18, 1 through 8, we saw for the destruction of that city due to their sin, we also saw that God called out believers. And today, we're going to watch that morning, but we're going to look at what their attitude is about, too, during that morning. We're going to look at the morning that goes on for the city and the system of Babylon, and these are the kings of the earth. So it starts out in verse 9, And the kings of the earth, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. So the kings of the earth, who are they? We saw in chapter 17, verse 16, they're the horns of the Antichrist. They represent the ten kings who represent the 10 kingdoms of the final kingdom. So the United States isn't necessarily going to be involved except as a part of the major kings of the earth at the end. So these kings, we know from the previous verses in Revelation 18, they committed acts of immorality with this city. And what was their attitude? They stood at a distance because of the fear of her torment. Is that a fear that because she's being tormented, they're then going to be destroyed? I would think so, because when we're associated with evil or with something that is wrong, we might be held accountable too. And they said, whoa, whoa, that's two woes. Again, when you have God using a word and using it twice, he's making a strong statement here. It's an exclamation of grief, a huge, doubly portioned exclamation of grief for the great city, the strong city, they called it. They said, in one hour, your judgment has come. We think, how is that possible? One hour. Look at Hiroshima. One hour, that city was destroyed. You consider 9-11. In one hour, Tower 1 was destroyed, Tower 2 was destroyed, and the Pentagon was hit. In one hour. So all kinds of things can be destroyed in one hour, as was Nagasaki in Japan during World War II. So that's not unusual. The point is, what kind of sorrow do these kings of the earth have? 
You see, there's really two kinds of sorrow. One is a godly sorrow, and one is a worldly sorrow. The difference could be explained in the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. Saul was told by God that he was to go out and kill all the Agites, including the king and everything that they had, and he didn't obey God. He also went and made sacrifices in the tabernacle, which he was not supposed to do. He disobeyed God. When he disobeyed God and he was called to task for that by the judge Samuel, he kind of sloughed it off. He made excuses. He didn't repent. David, on the other hand, committed horrendous sins. He had adultery. He killed Bathsheba's husband. He did terrible things. But when he was confronted, he repented. He had a sorrow of God not a sorrow of this world. Let's explain that by looking at 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, because I think that really explains these two sorrows. It says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, because see, we're all sorrowful. I either got caught or I'm repenting, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. There is the key, sorrow leading to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. Now you consider David. When David sinned against God and he repented, his sin was taken away from him. God forgave his sin. Now there were consequences, but God forgave his sin. So that's like not suffering loss in anything. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. So there's a difference. The sorrow of the world is, oh, I'm sorry, I got caught. I don't want these consequences. And it's the sorrow of the world. And the answer is death. But the sorrow of God leads us to repentance. That's the difference. In this passage, the kings of the earth have the sorrow of the world. It sort of reminds me of my little granddaughter. She's a toddler and she's learning to say sorry when she's sorry, but she doesn't really understand true repentance yet. Someday that's going to come and we're working on that. But the sorrow of the world has is not true sorrow. As we've talked about the kings we're going to work into now, the merchants, and for, for both uh, cases, it's what they've lost. It's their loss of privileges or lifestyle or whatever. And now for the merchants, it's loss of customers. It's loss of wealth. Isn't it true that we often mourn over what we lose, how it affects us? In this case, it's all about how it affects them. It doesn't seem to have any remorse whatsoever over the people or the city or the situation. It's all about them. And unfortunately, that's what the world's sorrow is all about. As we move into verse 11, we see these merchants and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Why are they weeping? Oops, I lost my business partners. It's not about the people. It's not about the situation. It's not about their sin. They lost their income. It goes on to say and explain the 28 different kinds of cargo that they were losing. 
It says cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. There was a lot of wealth still in the world at this time. If you go back to the opening of the third seal in Revelation 6, it says that there's a man holding scales and there's a famine. And it says, don't touch the oil or the wine. Right then it told us that there was going to be a disparity. You were going to have really poor people, but you were still going to have rich people. Here it tells us there's still a lot of wealth going on in the world. And these people are focused on the wealth, not on God. But what gets me is at the end of verse 13, when it talks about the buying and selling of slaves and human lives. I thought we stopped that in this world. Slavery was a thing of the past. Well, it's not. We know it still goes on in the world, though we wish it didn't. And we do whatever we could to stop it. But it's going to be more prominent again. Who are they going to sell? Are they going to sell the Christians? Maybe so. But we know that one of their great commodities are people, human lives, human trafficking. What a tragedy and how much that shows the attitudes of their hearts. Yes, truly, that how selfish can you be? That's the epitome of selfishness and hard-heartedness to be able to use other people the way they did. So it's like we have this elite class that still exists that have every single kind of luxury that you can possibly imagine. I think it's interesting when it says every kind of article of this or that or the other, all luxury, which is how Babylon the Great lived. This wealth and all of these luxury items are things that are now not going to be possible to trade because Babylon the Great is gone. And Revelation eighteen fourteen continues that thought by saying, and the fruit you long for has gone from you. And all the things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. Remember, it's all about them. The merchants of these things, who became rich from her, will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning. That's the exact same wording that they used with the kings of the earth. They stood at a distance because of fear of her torment, and they were weeping and mourning. But it was their personal mourning, their worldly mourning, not godly sorrow, not repentance. They said, whoa, whoa. Again, that idea of grief, huge explanation of grief. When they say, whoa, whoa, the great city. She was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, such great wealth has been laid waste. There it specifically says the wealth. That's what the merchants care about. Now, merchants do care about wealth. That's how they make their money. But the idea here is their whole attitude is selfish, self-centered, self-supporting, and fear for themselves and sorrow for what they don't have. Not sorrow over sin. Not sorrow for how this city has turned away from God. Their eyes were on these material possessions which have been laid out and inventoried for us in such detail. It's all about the um, lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the sinful pride of life. It's just as simple as that. Now, that was the kings of the earth. That was the merchants of the seas. Now it says in verse 17, and every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor 
And as many as made their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? Five times it calls her the great city in here. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning. You've got that same weeping and mourning again, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she's been laid waste. They recognize all three of these groups. They're mourning, they're weeping, they're saying, whoa, whoa, to the city. But it's all about them. Worldly sorrow, again, for these shipmasters and passengers, because the great city, the wealthy city, it says, has been laid waste. What an attitude they have. With the voice of mourning, it's a voice of selfishness. We have to ask ourselves, where's our voice when it comes to mourning over sin? Do we simply accept the things of the world? Are we tolerant of them because we need to accept other people and what they believe? Or is it an anathema to us? Do we hate to see these things happening in the world, but also creeping into our lives and our families? You see, with the way the world has changed and with the way the school system is promoting some deviant behavior among our kids in sex education, the pornographies that they're showing the children in the transgender promotion and the homosexual promotion, that's an anathema to God. It hurts God. We should hate that kind of sin because it hurts God, but also for what it's doing to our children and how it's weakening our faith and turning us away from God. Because if we're going to accept that kind of behavior or any sin that the Bible calls sin, then we're going to read it in scripture and go, oh, well, God must be wrong because these people are really nice people and they're okay. And, and he loves everybody. So God must have made a mistake. So then if we think God makes mistakes or that his word is a myth, as we talked about last week, then we're going to stop reading his word. And then we stop getting to know God and who he is and how he calls us to live. We stop following Jesus Christ. And there we are. We're just like the kings of the earth, the merchants and the shipmasters, because our attitude is not one of mourning over sin and repenting and being sorrowful. It's one of worldly sorrow. But in verse 20, we have a complete change of attitude. It says, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. So the instruction is to rejoice. All of heaven is rejoicing at the destruction of Babylon the Great. That's right. We first had a voice of mourning. Now we have a voice of rejoicing. What we're seeing is godly sorrow. We're seeing people who are so happy because they are seeing God justifying their walk with God, justifying his holiness as he turns and brings judgment on a sinful world. They have a relationship with God and they want everyone else too. And we think, well, that's terrible. We're not supposed to rejoice over someone else's calamity. But wait a minute, let's look at this as God looks at it. This isn't rejoicing over someone's calamity. This is rejoicing that God is faithful. He is judging a sinful world. Remember back in Revelation 6 at the fifth seal, it says, when the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar, the souls of those who've been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
And there was given to them a white robe that they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were to be killed even as they had been would be completed also. So this people in heaven crying out for God to judge the ungodly world. So it's not surprising that this passage is in here. Rejoice over her, O heaven, because God has stood as the judge. In verse 20, when we see the rejoicing over the destruction of the city of Babylon and that system, and we think about the souls under the altar and going back to Revelation 6, there are also a couple of more places in Revelation, and I'm thinking of Revelation chapter 11, verses 17 through 18. We give you thanks, O Lord, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. That is so awesome because it tells us that Jesus wins. And it also sees people giving thanks that he's bringing his wrath upon the earth. We should rejoice when God is in control and God is bringing about his judgment. Revelation 15, 3 and 4 says much the same thing. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glory your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. These people, again, are worshiping God for what a great God he is in bringing destruction, not because he's destroying people, but because sin is being judged. In this particular passage, they reference the song of Moses because they're singing a song much like Moses sang a song in Exodus 15 after the Egyptians were destroyed and all their dead bodies were laying up on the shore It says in Exodus 15, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang the song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he is mighty. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. They go on to call God a warrior as the one who destroyed all those Egyptians. Well, that may sound terrible that we're praising God for destroying people. But these are sinners who have made it their heart and their point to turn against God. They have not had a godly sorrow in their lives. They've had a worldly sorrow. When that happens, God will destroy them. He tells us that will happen in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 10, when he says, They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. God is going to judge people based on that verse, because they did not know the love of the truth. They did not know Jesus Christ. They did not walk with him. But God doesn't do that until people have completely turned away from God and followed their own ways. And there's no way that they're ever going to turn back. And God knows that. So when that happens, there is judgment on that people. We spoke several weeks ago about how almost every single chapter in Revelation focuses on God and the amazing heart and characteristics of God and how God's people 
respond to God during this evil and ungodly lifetime. How can you not rejoice at the destruction of evil? Evil is going to be destroyed so that heaven can be heaven. The kingdom of God can be the kingdom of God without any of this evil influence existing anywhere in any corner of the universe. So, of course, that that would bring about great rejoicing. And I think about the martyrs that you brought up and how, you know, the woman, the whore of Babylon, was drunk with the blood of the saints, those who had been martyred. So the ones that were under the altar, their death has been avenged. And vengeance belongs to the Lord and the destruction of evil belongs to the Lord. We saw at the beginning of chapter 18, the voice of judgment. Now, as we end chapter 18, verse 21 through verse 24 gives the voice of destruction. This is it, folks. Everything's going to be destroyed because in chapter 19, we're going to see Jesus return. But anyway, let's read Revelation 18, 21. And a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeteers will not be heard in her any longer. And no craftsman or any craft will be found in her any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in her any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in her any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in her any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who'd been slain on the earth. We see a pattern here. Everything's destroyed because it says all these things will no longer be found in her. Why? According to verse 24, and in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and of all who'd been slain on the earth. Obviously, no city today has killed all the prophets or all the saints. And obviously, by the way, this isn't Jerusalem, if anybody thinks it is, because Jerusalem is not destroyed. This city represents a city of sin, a city of apostate religion, a city of anti-God government control that turns people against God. This atmosphere, this attitude, this representative city is what for thousands of years has been used to kill the prophets and the saints to destroy God's people, to try and focus on Satan and his kingdom and bring Satan's kingdom into existence instead of God's. Everything that we've seen throughout the book of Revelation is designed by Satan for one last trial, one opportunity, one battle to try and defeat Jesus Christ, to try and win the control of the hearts of men. But fortunately, he doesn't win. Our Savior wins. It is Jesus Christ who will return after he has judged all these people. Well, it's time to ask ourselves, are we walking in the enjoyment of the pleasures of this world and walking against our God? How do we respond to sin in our own lives or in the world? Are we walking with God in such a way that we cannot tolerate sin, that we truly grieve and mourn over sin? Or are we just getting caught up in that slippery slope that turns away from God? God's judgment's coming. It's coming on evil on this world. We can go back to the time of Noah, when every intent of man's heart was only evil continually, and that's what we see today. Are you sure that how you're living matches up with God in his word? 
If not, you're going to want to go to God and say, oh, God, show me the areas in my life where I'm not walking with you. Show me areas that need to be changed, that are dishonoring to you, that are hurting you. Because all sin hurts God. Sin is missing the mark. And the mark is the perfection of God. When we miss God's perfection, we hurt him and we hurt us because it draws us away from God. Will you turn to Jesus today? That's the most important thing you can do. There is nothing you've done in the past that can keep you from him. All you have to do is confess it. Confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and turn you from all unrighteousness. Then make a commitment to Jesus to walk with him in a new way, to fix your eyes on Jesus, to search him out in the word of God and to obey him. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.